Welcome to the HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. This event was recorded live at the Feakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Enjoy. Always feels like a really long walk, that. You're always thinking, will the applause last? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you all for coming out so early in the morning. This feels like the middle of the night to me and Sarah. And I feel like I'm in the interrogation room because those cleagues are right in my eyes, and yet here I am smiling, refusing to reveal anything that would incriminate me. Believe me, by the end of this, you'll tell us where the gold is buried. (laughs) Well, it's an absolute delight for me to be here today with Sarah Paretsky. If I can get the top off the water, that would be even better. Um, (laughs) You do it. (laughs) Yeah. This, this is typical in the United Kingdom. When they need a really hard job of work done, they bring in the polls. <laughs> so true. Thank you. So. Thank you, Mom. <laughs> Back in the 1980s, I wanted to be a crime writer. Um, And I didn't know how to do it, because in Britain there were only village mysteries and police procedurals. And I grew up in a Scottish mining community where we had no retired colonels of the Indian Army. Um, And the few police officers I'd encountered as a journalist had not filled me with a burning desire to spend enough time in their company to learn how to do their job. So I was kind of stymied. Um, And then uh, a friend of mine sent me a copy of a book that had just come out in America. And that book was Indemnity Only. Now, this is not about me. This is about the significance of Sarah Paretsky and the effect of Sarah Paretsky on our world, the world of crime writing. I read this book, and here was this strong female character who had a smart mouth, a sense of humour, but most of all, a passion for justice, both legal justice and social justice. And... Like Sarah herself, VI cares about the dispossessed and the marginalised. She believes in using what power she has in support of those who are powerless, using her voice for those who can't speak up for themselves. And she never knows, just like Sarah, when it's time to lie down and give up. (laughs) VI Warshawski, 1982. Without her, there could be no Lisbeth Salander, no Jane Tennyson, no Sarah Lund. There was a group of women writers who came along around that time and created that new wave of female private eyes. Sue Grafton, Barbara Wilson, Marsha Muller. But none of them captured our imagination like V.I. Wachowski. None of them has had the legs of V.I. Wachowski, both literally and metaphorically. (laughs) She's hard to resist, even when her stubbornness tips over into rashness. Because at the root of everything V.I. does... There's a fundamental decency that finds an echo in all of us. She is the crusader we'd all like to be, with or without a cape. The power of VI has been reflected in the accolades that have been piled on Sarah over the years. She's got the Crime Writers Association Cartier Diamond Dagger. She's a grand master of the Mystery Writers of America. She's got an Anthony Award and a Lifetime Achievement Award. She's got Gold and Silver Dagger. She's the founding mother of Sisters in Crime, which led to her being Ms. Magazine's Woman of the Year. 
We're really, really lucky to have her here with us this morning. Sarah Paretsky is extraordinary. She changed the face of crime writing. Please put your hands together for Sarah one more time. Thank you. It's very kind. It's, it's Val, thank you all. It's too generous. So what, what was the journey? What was the journey that took you to crime fiction? I always was a reader of crime fiction. Everyone in my family was. We were a large family with one bathroom, and that was where you went to be private to read, and people were pounding on the outside door. But there you'd be with Dorothy Salisbury Davis or Dorothy Hughes, and you know, go away, go away. And uh, as I grew older, exactly as Val was saying, the way that, that crime fiction both treated social strata and also treated women began to really uh, annoy me. And I think I write best, most passionately when I'm feeling passionate about something. I'm not sure I ever would have actually written a novel. I wrote very privately. I grew up in a time and place where there was no expectation for me or girls to operate outside a domestic sphere. And so I was sort of sleepwalking, stumbling my way to a voice both in the public world and in the writing world. And I'm not sure I ever would have tried to write for publication if I hadn't had this kind of visceral need to see a woman depicted in a way that was credible, a woman who could solve problems, didn't need to be rescued, who could have a sex life that didn't define her moral goodness or badness. That she could be human, but, but willing to kind of take the heat that comes with, with not being willing to shut up. <laughs> And that probably goes for both of us here this morning. <laughs> You're going to have trouble at the end of this session probably getting us off the stage. Um, I've, I've heard you speak about um, reading those, those early crime writers like Chandler and Hammett um, and, and finding um, uh, the rage building in you at the portrayal of women within those books, that you were either a, a vamp, a victim, or a vixen. Exactly. Um, uh, that, uh, and in a way, that, that says what, what VI is not, but... What, what, where did she come from specifically? What, what are her roots? What made her VI? I grew up in rural Kansas, and I came to Chicago when I was 19 doing community work in the civil rights movement. Chicago, I love Chicago, and Chicago is a city of many warts as well. It's also a city, it's an immigrant city, and people cling to their immigrant roots in a way that just was baffling to someone from the rural Midwest. So it was where I met hyphenated Americans. Uh, and after my, um, my summer of service in the civil rights movement and needing to work for a living and being clueless, I just got a job as a secretary and ended up in a, in a university campus. That was where the employment agency placed me. And Polish-American kids would come in wanting me to waive fines for them or get them into closed classes, and I would say no. And they'd say, you're a traitor to the Polish nation. And I was like, I'm just the secretary. I'm not grand enough to betray an entire nation. <laughs> but, um, but VI has her, her roots in, in one of Chicago's old industrial neighborhoods where those ethnic identities 
really matter and where people are very clannish. When I started wanting to write about her, I didn't want someone who, you know, Modesty Blaze was on the scene then. And uh, I wanted someone who was an authentic street fighter, not a karate expert. So I had her come out of that industrial, you either were sent to a convent school, you got pregnant at 14 and married, or you became a really tough street fighter. And so I had her come out of that kind of background. So she both knows sort of how to operate. She did a law degree, she was a public defender. She sort of knows how to operate with a veneer of civilization on her, but at heart, like me, she's really a pit dog. <laughs> <laughs> and that, um, that south side of Chicago, where you arrived at, at 19, that must have been a tremendous contrast to the, the, the rural Kansas where you grew up. And yet, you, you, you completely absorbed it and completely adopted it. And I remember going back quite a few years now, yeah. um, when I, I first went to Chicago, I was researching a book about real women private eyes, um, and we had, we had been trying to connect before I came over there, because you'd very generously said, if you're coming to Chicago, come and stay, and I thought, she doesn't really mean it, you know, <laughs> she's, a, she's a big star, and I'm kind of like a nobody, but she was nice of her to say, so maybe we could get together for a drink or something, but we were trying to contact each other, and this was the days before email, so right. was, you know, I'd send a fax to your fax machine, and you'd, you'd leave a message on my answering machine, and we kept not connecting. And I was planning my trip, trying not to spend my entire advance on the research. And so I, I was checking, I, I, I was booking into hotels, motels that were, were in the rough guide, places that were kind of cheap, but looked <coughs> respectable. And I saw this, this, this motel, and I saw it was on Michigan Avenue, right. and I knew Michigan Avenue was where the Hilton was, which at the time, when it was built, was the biggest hotel in the world. And I thought, well, it can't be that bad. So I, I checked into this, this place, and it was just awful. <laughs> and the, from, the, from, from my window, I could see people doing drug deals in the alley below. It no two pieces research. of furniture in the bedroom matched. And I actually, I actually did something I've never done before or since in a hotel. I actually dragged the chest of drawers behind the door <laughs> before I went to bed. And the next day, I made, I made contact with, with Sarah, and I, I told her where I was staying. And Sarah said, you chose the block where the glitz meets the shit. <laughs> Stay where you are. Don't move. I'm coming to get you. <laughs> and you turned up in your Lincoln. And Jaguar. No, it was, the, it was still the Lincoln in those days. Never a Lincoln. Jag, it must have been it? a Buick. Whatever. It, wasn't, it was before the Jag. It was a Buick. So, <laughs> and whisked me off. But not to sort of, not to grandeur. You whisked me off and showed me VI's Chicago before you took me in. I waved and strayed, rescued the perishing. Um, but that was typical of you both in, in the generosity of the, the action, but also just in the fact that you wanted to share your Chicago with me. You wanted me not to come to the city and go away with, with, without a full sense of, of your adopted place. And, and then Val explored it in much more detail than I ever did. Her... <laughs> Her, I don't know, ability to just go and talk to anyone. I'm very shy in that way. But she met people that I should have been meeting and talking to, but instead I made them up. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember sitting on your back porch with a woman showing me her gun. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you coming out slightly nervously. <laughs> <laughs> don't give that to Val. <laughs> 
Well, I think the, the, point, the point I'm really trying to, trying to make there, I mean, apart from your, your generosity, which is legend, but is your, your absolute sense of connectedness to your adopted city. And it seems to me that, that, that your love of Chicago, with all its warts, is something that has become an integral part of what you write. Well, it's, I think it's the city where I came of age. When I was a child growing up in, in Kansas, we got the New Yorker, and I always imagined that I'd be upstairs at the downstairs or maybe Paris or London. I never thought of Chicago, the hog butcher of the world, although no longer. Uh, but that summer that I spent there working in the community, you know, it, it was the 60s. We had such a sense of possibility. And even though the violence, the white riots against integration, against jobs, equality, and housing, they were staggering. I mean, at the end of the day, Dr. King said, I've, I've faced mobs in Birmingham and in Mississippi, and I've never seen the hatred that I've seen here. Even so, the, the way we were engaged in the community and the sense of the possibility of change, uh, the city just got into my blood. And when I graduated from university, it didn't occur to me to go anywhere else. The other... I th and so I think the city is integral to the books because it's where I grew up. But the other thing is, is that I worked with kids in the neighborhood, six to 11 year olds, and we would take them around town. They had never been out of their neighborhood. And we'd bring them back and ask them what they'd seen. And we expected them to talk about the buildings or whatever. But they saw the details close up, a fox running along the, the elevated tracks or drunks passed out on the rooftops, and it changed my eye. And when I write, even now, my God, 50 years later, that's not possible. I, I try to remember those kids and think, what would they be seeing as they're going around town? And I think that has, has, made, has made one of the strengths of the books is that the stories you write are organic. They come from the city. They come from those neighborhoods. They, they're, they're almost stories that couldn't happen anywhere else because they're rooted in the fabric mm -hmm. of, of that city and the societies, that the different societies that operate within that city, whether it's the, the gang culture of the South Side or whether it's the, it's the, the, the rich people on Lake Michigan. Mm -hmm. uh, you, under, you understand that from the inside, and that makes, I think that gives the books... A tremendous, a tremendous authenticity, because because it feels organic. It doesn't feel like you're just randomly bolting on a murder to a locale. You know, Thanks. it's not like it's not like Jessica Fletcher. You know, if you come to, <laughs> if you come to Cabot Cove, there's going to be a murder. You know. But but with 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 the with the V. I. Wachowski books, it, it it feels to me as if they rise naturally, like the the scum oh. rising to the top of the. <laughs> dead I had stick an pond. angry letter from a reader once saying. Why are you so mean to the rich people all the time? They're always villains. And I thought, well, write what you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I suppose the physicality of the city, the physical quality you bring to the descriptions of the city, also is balanced by the physicality of, of Via Wachowski herself. I mean, she's, there's nothing sort of ethereal about her. We have a very strong sense of what she's like and who she is. Um, and, and it seems to me... Um, I, I, and I, I don't know how strongly you felt this when you were creating this. You, you gave her dead parents, mm -hmm. which is um, 
useful in many respects because of what they can stand for in her life. You know, her father, the, on, the only cop of integrity on the south side. You know, her mother, the, the, the tragic Italian singer who dies so young. Um, and in a way, you've, 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 you've given her these symbols in her past, but that also gives her a kind of freedom. She's not shackled to the everyday of having to cope with ageing parents, that right. sort of thing. And it, it seemed to... It's, I, I wondered if, when you were creating her, you had one eye on, on wanting her to be almost a, a, almost a fantasy creature that we can all invest in emotionally. Now we, I mean, and I thought, I thought of this because when I, when I was writing the Lindsay Gordon books, you know, first British lesbian detective, I was very conscious of writing a character that would be, because there were no others like her, that, 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 that she would be someone that readers could either identify with or they could imagine as their best friend or they could imagine as something they could aspire to. I didn't want to put um, too much grounding on her in a sense. But, and I wondered if when you were creating VI, you were thinking in terms of she had to speak to us all. She had to speak to every woman in a way. Well, I wish I could say that, that I had written as consciously and deliberately as, as you did or as you're thinking about her. But the, the truth is, is that when I, was, when I was starting, I didn't have confidence in my voice. I didn't have confidence that I, I could do this. And so I really followed the conventions of the form very slavishly. You know, on the one hand, you're you're absolutely right. Her her parents are are, are almost too good to be true. In a couple of the books, she's forced to see the moral choices that her father made that that were that tarnish his image in her eyes. And Lottie Herschel is there as the moral corrective on the choices that people have to make in order to survive. Sometimes, but. The, the, the old male noir detectives were loners, and um, I've sometimes regretted that I didn't have the confidence to give VI a living family that would, it's, it's messier to have a living family. I'm not a loner by nature, and that, that, that image or that style didn't work for me emotionally, and so rapidly people started gathering around her as a kind of extended family and in relationship to her. I think that for me, what VI really is, is a voice. And I know that she is very physical uh, in a way that I couldn't possibly be. I don't have the physical strength or stamina to do what she does. She's never in physical com conflict, confrontation, unless she said something, and that's her real role, is to say what, what the people in positions of power do not want said. And that evokes a ferocious response. And so metaphorically, the response is physical, but in real life, it could easily be physical as well. I mean, we had a police torture ring in Chicago that operated for 19 years that was well known in the mayor's office and in the state's attorney's office and ran with impunity. Uh, footnote, digression, a project I'm taking part in is giving voice to the stories of the people who had been tortured and I'm writing one case story uh, for that project. But um, it, there's a very physical reaction 
uh, and a ruthless reaction. And so being willing to speak up in, in that kind of way is a very high-risk occupation. And that was what she was for me. More than anything else, she was going to speak in a way that I often felt too intimidated to speak. It was politics that brought you to Chicago in the first place. Right. And, you know, here we are, as you said, an, an unthinkable 50 years later. Mm. Um, and it seems to me that the fierce fire burns in you as strongly as it ever did, which is quite unusual. Most of us mellow a bit as we get older. You know, those ardent convictions of our youth that get the edges rubbed off I by... I think that's true of you. <laughs> don't say most of us. Say <laughs> Many of us. <laughs> Many of us lose our fire. Um, and and those, those things that, that drove us in our youth become less important to us as our lives become cluttered with other things, you know, professional ambition, family, the necessity of, of, of the day-to-day. -day. That overwhelms those, those, those ideals that were held so burning bright. And that hasn't happened with you. It seems to me that politics remains at the heart of your books. It's something that, that you care about. It's, it's a politics of compassion as much as, as of of ideology. It's about equality, it's about compassion, it's about helping people who haven't got the power, who haven't got the voices themselves. And it also seems to me, looking at the field of American fiction, crime fiction in particular, you are the only one who still speaks like this. Well, I, I don't know if that's, if that's true. I'm, I'm I think it's not true, but I'm not coming up with other names. I'm too late at night, too early in the morning, and my frontal lobes, the passion is still there, but the frontal lobes are shrinking <laughs> inexorably. But I think, um, I mean, it's early in the morning for passion, but America is a country of immigrants. Everyone came from somewhere else. The only people who didn't want to come were brought there in chains. And it, it just drives me wild. I would not be alive if, if my granny hadn't been able to flee a pogrom before the immigration quotas were put in place. The rest of her family were all murdered because they weren't able to leave Europe. And um, I, it just drives me wild that, that we want to pull up the drawbridge and, and shut that door and hide behind gated communities and forget the fact that that we all came from somewhere else and um, there was a little movie made about this down in Texas uh, when the first big anti-Mexican immigration movement came along and it was uh, here's your day without Mexicans in Texas so uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah but as I say, it seems to me, I mean, broad brushstroke generalizations are always difficult. But in general, British crime fiction does seem to have more concern with, with, with politics. It does now. And I remember now, yeah. uh, what an eye-opener it was the first time I read Gillian Slovo to see the police depicted the way a Chicago police department was, not the, not the way a Dorothy Sayers police department yeah. was. And I used to have a fantasy about doing a parody of Peter Whimsey. I mean, I love Dorothy Sayers, don't get me wrong, but a parody of Peter Whimsey in Chicago. Oh, have you, going up to the, the police officer and saying, oh, Sergeant, I wonder if bonk. 
Thanks. <laughs> it would make for a much shorter novel. <laughs> Which in some cases one would be grateful for. <laughs> but, I mean, I think um, in, in some respects, because you have been so outspoken, um, it, it must have felt at times like you were swimming against the tide. Do you, do you think it's made your, your career more difficult because you have been so adamant for what you believe in? I think uh, I would be much more successful commercially if I'd pulled my punches. Um, I, I hope I have never written a book. I, my, my sort of how not to do this is a, a Russian writer of the 1930s named Gribachev, or maybe Gribachev, who won the state prize for contributions to Soviet literature in 1935 for a book called Victory in, in the Collective, Spring in the Victory Collective Farm. Uh, and the hero was Ivan, somebody who was on a tractor 24-7 bringing in the potato harvest. And I really hope I have never written Spring in the Victory Collective <laughs> Farm. I think it's safe to say that's <laughs> never happened. And I don't expect it to happen anytime soon. But a, a novel that I wrote a couple, published a couple of years ago, Breakdown, was, was really triggered by the Daily Mail uh, hacking scandal. And when I, when I saw that they had actually gone into Gordon Brown's NHS records and were publicizing the treatment of his seriously mortally ill child, my rage knew no bounds. And of course, at the same time, um, Fox News, 40%, 38% of Americans get their news, such as it is, from Fox. And Roger Ailes, head of News Corp, was George Bush's media advisor. And is there a conflict of interest there? No. And he actually bragged on television about planting false stories in key congressional races in order to get Republican candidates to win. So I wrote a book against that backdrop and then Obama had just been elected and the crudest kinds of, of slogans were being shown about him on Fox News. Uh, and so I used all of those as part of the campaign against an African-American Senate candidate. Well, that, that book, had a serious negative effect on on my commercial career. And I look at it and think, had I known ahead of time that what a impact that was going to have on me commercially, would I still have had the guts to write it? And I'm really glad that I didn't know in advance because I would hate to think that that I wouldn't have written it, but you never know when your feet are in the fire what you'll do. I think we can safely say what you would have done. <laughs> um, and that kind of brings me in a, in a roundabout way to the work, the things you do that are not just about the writing. Um, and one of the things that I think is a key uh, part of, tells us a bit about Sarah Paretsky, maybe more than in, in, in something different than what the books tell us, was the way you, you were key in forming Sisters in Crime. Uh, the people in this room will probably not know very much about what Sisters in Crime 
is and does, because in spite of some of our best efforts, we've never actually managed to, to found a UK chapter of Sisters in Crime. Well, maybe we haven't needed think, it the way we did. Well, I think we need it just as much as you do. Um, and I think there's, there's partly a sort of deep suspicion of anything that comes from over there. <laughs> That, that, that claims to be political in any respect. <laughs> um, but can you tell us what was behind the thinking behind Sisters in Crime? Maybe a little bit about what Sisters in Crime was set up to do. Yes, what, when I published my first book in 1982, and uh, Sue Grafton and I published our first books within a couple of months of each other, we were, we, the sales were extremely modest, but the reviews were really strong. And the way, uh, at least in the States, and I don't really know the market here, but libraries are the most important buyers of books, especially for new and for mid-list writers. And libraries base their buying decisions on seeing at least two, and today three, reviews in a nationally juried publication. And so it wasn't until a few years down the road when I started meeting other women writers that I realized what a lucky hand Sue and I had been dealt. I think because we were doing something that was seen, yes, we had women and we were feminist, or at least I was. Uh, I'm not gonna speak for Sue, but, um, but we were doing something that was in a very male tradition. And so we sort of, it's what I call the Dolus syndrome, when they don't look like us, we don't pay attention to them. Well, we looked enough like the male writer that we got attention. Women, other women weren't. I'm betting that Lindsay, being lesbian, even if she was an investigator, wouldn't have seen reviews early on. The, the Lindsay Gordon books didn't get reviewed at all initially because they were published as paperback originals at a time when the, the newspapers in this country only reviewed hardbacks. Uh. So Lindsay was reviewed, was, was published without a single review initially. But, uh, so I, I started, there, that was a, a big thing and there were other issues. You'd go to a crime conference and there'd be a panel for the women crime writers and then the boys would talk about other things. Um, what it means to be a boy crime writer. Um, there were just a lot of different things going on and I was hearing enough about it that, that I sent out an invitation to breakfast at the Baltimore BoucherCon in 86 saying, come to breakfast and let me see if there's enough concern that you want an organization or if you just want to whine. And, um, and everybody wanted to get on board, and so we started out of that. And the review issue, I'm, I'm harping on that because we actually went and gathered data, all the books published in a given year, the year in 1987, and then the 25 of us who started and the people who began joining in, we read every review publication and monitored it. And we found that a book by a man was seven times more likely to be reviewed than a book by a woman. And we thought, well, the men might write twice as well as we do, but not seven times as well as we do. <laughs> so we started, we started doing things to address that. The, the uh, backlash, in the, not in the industry, publishers are always happy if you're trying to find ways to sell more books, but among reviewers and in the fanzines, the blogs of yesteryear, the backlash was ferocious. I mean, Otto Penzler, who, who loves me and smooches me all the time now. Uh, he was ruthless and the language, he did not pull any punches. And 
and I was a castrator and I was trying to take men's books out of bookshelves and one woman who joined our steering committee got a call saying she would never get another publishing contract if she was part of Sisters. So in the beginning, we were, we were seen as a, as a huge threat. In the end, I think, we actually grew the mystery market. And the mystery is the most buoyant part of the publishing industry. We brought huge numbers of new readers to the industry, and I, I believe that Sisters really has helped save the industry. But it's, it's also become now it's sort of more traditional, more mainstream. I don't play a role in it anymore. I'm really looking for mothers in crime. <laughs> yeah, I think guess, I guess what, what Sisters in Crime also does now is, is very much um, work with new writers as well. Yes, I, I think that's the bit, biggest thing that they now do. To develop writing. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, all of, all of this we can lay at your door. You know, thanks for the competition, Sarah. It's really what, really what we needed. Yeah, that's what I think whenever I go to yeah. a meeting. I'm smiling and saying welcome, and then I'm thinking, you're doing this better than I am. Go away. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When it comes to, to finding stories to write about, when it comes to, I mean, there is, there is a sense in which, you know, if, if, you, if you are someone who finds yourself outraged by, by the news every morning, then there's no shortage of things to write about. But, but are, you, are you somebody who, who's... who's ideas for, for, for novels beyond the original, I'm, I'm outraged by this. Does, do you, are you fueled by what you see in the headlines or, or is it more that you plunder the lives of, of the people around you and, and, and say, I'm outraged by that and I know someone who can give me the insight. I'm thinking of, of, of Critical Mass, the book before mm -hmm. Brushback, where you take us into the world of, of the atom bomb development and, and physics in, in, in Chicago, which of course is, was your husband's right. world for, for, for 40 years or so in the, in the Fermi Institute. And clearly that was someone whose life you could just plunder on the doorstep. You know, do your research without even having to leave the house. Um, but is, is that generally how it works with you? You find somebody who, who is an insider in a particular thing that you're interested in or is it the, the story that drives you first? Oh, the story drives me first almost always. Brushback is a little bit of an exception. I wanted, uh, I started with a setting, the Wrigley Field where the Chicago Cubs baseball team pretends to play. Um, <laughs> it's, an, it's an old and historic building and um, it, it can't be torn down. I, it, never mind, I'm not gonna go there. We don't have enough time for that. <laughs> but I met a guy who led tours into the bowels underneath, and I, he quit doing it before I could sign up, but he told me underneath it's really disgusting, and in particularly, particular, he was focused on a toilet that hadn't been flushed since 1927, he claimed. <laughs> and I thought, what a place for a chase scene. Oh. And yeah. I've yeah. always been bitter with, with Harrison Ford and The Fugitive for getting into the laundry room at the Chicago Hilton, the biggest hotel yeah. in the than in the world uh, until Dallas started building hotels. But uh, it's, it was such a great chase scene in that laundry room and I thought, well, I'm gonna get under Wrigley Field before Harrison Ford does. And um, I kept calling the Cubs, they didn't answer my phone calls. I, I have an email trail showing that they never answered my emails. And then finally I thought, well guys, you had your chance. And so I had the chance to make it as lurid as possible and I did. Um, <laughs> But usually it's the story that, that makes it go. And with Critical Mass, it is very much my homage to my husband. 
he, uh, he actually served in the Royal Navy during the Second World War and, and therefore wasn't doing physics, but he, when he left, he did a PhD at Berkeley and then Enrico Fermi brought him to Chicago. He was a very smart little boy, my husband. And through him, I had the enormous mind-boggling privilege of meeting, Fermi was long dead by then, but many of the people who had been the real giants in that field. I'll tell you one thing I learned writing critical mass is that you can sleep next to somebody for 40 years and understanding relativity does not seep across <laughs> the pillars. <laughs> well, you're talking then about brushback, it reminded me we, we, we also have something else in common, our, our, our passion for, for sports teams that seldom win. Oh, come on, aren't you a Manchester United fan? No, no I, my club is Wraith Rovers. I'm a director of oh, Wraith Rovers Football oh, oh, Club. Oh, excuse me. Excuse me. Manchester, as we say in Scotland, you, you have your first team, then you have your wee team, and Manchester United's my wee team. <laughs> but my heart belongs to Wraith Rovers, who are uh, almost as successful as the Cubs. <laughs> But, uh, and, and have a stadium that I suspect is almost as old as uh. Ridley Field. And I think our main stand dates back to 1923, and I wouldn't like to think of what's underneath the main <laughs> stand. Um, you've chosen, since we're talking about history and, and, and going back in time, you have chosen to age VI, not quite in real time. Um, and I, I understand all the pressures of that. I, it's like Tony Hill and Carol Jordan age, but not in real time. Um, she is 50 now, though. Mm -hmm. And I was conscious of that when I was reading Brushback, particularly at the end, the dramatic chase at the end, thinking, I couldn't climb that wall when I was 50. <laughs> I couldn't have climbed that wall when I was 30, but never mind. Um, how, how, much, how much longer can you keep exposing her to these kind of dangers where the response has to be physical? Is VI going to have to somehow shift in the way that she does the things that she does to take some of the the physical edge out of her daily life? When I started this series, I, I really wanted to age her more or less in real time because who she is is very grounded in historical events. Her mother was a refugee from the race laws of Mussolini's Italy and she herself came of age in the great social movements of the 60s and 70s. But as time has passed, and it's, it's really... These, this is a question that I've asked myself. I, I wanted to try to find, my first, my first wish was to find a way to have her be effective without her being physical. Well, I haven't solved that problem. And until I do, I've decided to betray my own kind of principle on this and just keep her around 50 for a time. Also, you know, I'm closer to 70 than to 60 and at, at my age, you suffer a lot of loss. Everyone suffers losses, but as you age, you suffer many losses. And the world that I can control is the world between these covers. And I can't bear to lose my characters. You know, Lottie Herschel, she came here with the Kinder Transport in 39. She, in real time, she'd be 85. She shouldn't be practicing medicine. She certainly shouldn't be in an operating room, but <laughs> you be the person to take that scalpel from her hand. <laughs> and Mr. Contreras, he's about 95 now, and the dogs are 120. <laughs> and, and I'm just, 
it's never never land now. It's never never land in the mean streets of Chicago. I just can't bear and I was thinking, well, maybe Mr. Contreras is starting to develop Alzheimer's. And I thought, no, no, no. no. So, um, you know, I'm not really someone built for hard-boiled fiction. I'm I, sentimental. I like happy endings. And in my books, at least one person has a mildly happy ending. <laughs> well, which brings me inexorably to the fact that V.I. does, uh, one area of her life, finally seem to have found a happy ending. She's finally, after looking for love in some of the wrong places, found a relationship with someone that really seems to work for her. Did it take you a long time to figure out the kind of man that she could actually be happy with? Well, or, or did yes. you want her to keep having her heart broken? <laughs> One of the problems that I have is that she gets involved in a case, there's, there's a sexual tension, uh, and um, then the, there's the guy in the next book, what are you going to do with him? So the man who was really best for her was this police officer, Conrad Rawlings. Uh, and if there's a policeman in the world life of a private investigator, either he agrees with her assessment, in which case 13,000 boys and girls in blue come and take over the case, or he doesn't believe her, in which case they fight, and V.I. is a street fighter, and so Conrad and she broke up. And Jake, yeah, I like Jake a lot, but but I realized in Brushback, I, uh, there was something missing. The eye couldn't kind of explore that erotic possibility with any of the potential villains or heroes. So in the new book, of which I've written 16 pages, only 484 more to go, um, <laughs> Jake is actually going to Basel on a fellowship, he's won an important fellowship, and VI's dropping him at the airport with his two bases, six boxes of music, and oh, she's, it's all going to go horribly wrong yeah. again, isn't it? <laughs> so I haven't Damn. decided whether there will be a reunion at the end or whether Jake is now toast. Uh. Oh man, we all know which way that's going to go, don't we? <laughs> so, tell me. In a practical way, what is your writing year like? <laughs> that's, 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 that's enough. That's fine, that's fine. <laughs> you say you're 16 pages in. I mean, is that... I mean, I've how, been working how, on it for four months, okay? Okay, that's fine, but I, just totally, I totally understand that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's that, it's that um, slightly high-pitched response you give when you speak to your editor on the phone and you go, I'm writing! <laughs> a I wrote two sentences this month. So my my in my theoretical life, um, <laughs> I start work at ten in the morning. And do you know that Sue Grafton writes five pages every morning before six a.m. or maybe oh. at seven a.m. I know, I know. <laughs> and but I mean, like, what what is that about? Right. That, that is a woman who has a swimming pool in her back garden and oh, a lot she? of sunshine. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? If you've, got, if you've got that prospect ahead of you, maybe that could... No, 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 sorry. No, it couldn't. It couldn't. There's no way. I mean, there's no way I could write at five o'clock in the morning. Well, it I could just... because I haven't slept yet. Yeah. <laughs> if I was still up from the night before, yeah. But uh, no, 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 I couldn't do that, no. So my <sighs> theoretical writing life is very different from my actual writing life. And I don't know what you'd rather hear about. <laughs> Tell us the reality. Come, be, be, 
expose, expose to us the, the, the dark secret that you actually write this book in two weeks. <laughs> in my dreams. I learned early on, when, after my first book was published, and that took a year to find a publisher, the other day I was looking for the title to my car, which has gone to Jesus, and I couldn't find it, but what I did find were all the rejection letters I got from my first book, including one that said, a book set in the Midwest, um, which is Chicago's right in the middle of the United States, has interest to regional uh, readers only and not enough people read in the Midwest to justify um, <laughs> <laughs> Does that sound like Manchester, maybe? Yeah, well, I had some, when I, when I, when I wrote the Kate Brannigan books, you know, there was a lot of muttering amongst London publishers. Well, why would people want to read about Manchester? Right, <laughs> why indeed? So, um, then the book was finally bought and sold. In those days, I'd sold 3,500 copies in the States now they won't come back to you if you haven't sold 27,000. Mm. But then that was enough that they wanted a second book. And I thought, oh God, I'm a writer. I'd better outline. Well, I outlined myself into, into a corner I couldn't get out of. And for me, the story has to come organically. It evolves. Mm -hmm. the, the characters, when they, when they start speaking, when they come into motion, it changes how I see the action and what their possibilities are. So the first six months are a lot of trial and error, backing and filling. I know in a big way, meta way, what, what I want to do, but the human story that gets me there, that's very slow to come to me. And I, thinking is my weakest skill. When I know what I'm doing, the writing really yeah. does come yeah. easily, but it's, I always imagine myself, we had a dog when I was a child, a fox terrier, who was at war with the garden sprinkler, and it was one of those two pronged things, and it would go like this, and Jeff would be in the middle of it. <laughs> and that's, that's me with my story we could talk all morning here, but I want to open up to questions from the audience in just a moment. But before I do that, you have achieved so much in your writing career. What ambitions remain? What ambitions remain? I think if I had ever written a perfect book, I'd stop. But I'd love to write a book, books to me that, have, that stand out in my mind, Wolf Hall, Catch-22. I'd just like to write a perfect book and every time I start I think this could be the one and then my brain fogs over and it and it never is. I know that I mean Val's comments and Natasha's they're very generous but but I continue to have a lot of insecurity as a person as a writer think I don't know what I'm doing I'm doing it wrong or I'd like to clear that fog out of my brain and take bigger chances um, I'd like to get the energy to write a young adult book. I have a sort of, two sort of stories in the back of my mind. Whether I'll ever get there, I don't know. I'd like to keep writing. I hope that the stories keep coming to me. If the stories stop coming to me, I really don't know what I'll do. Um, jump off the tower, formerly known as Sears. Um, Just go out into Lake Michigan and keep swimming. Right, right, right. <laughs> 
You know, if my, when it's my turn to interview Val, we're going to start with learning to swim in the North Sea. But, uh, <laughs> she did drag me into Lake Michigan to swim on one occasion. Yeah. I thought I was going to die. <laughs> <laughs> it's very weird when you're used to swimming in, in, in salt water. Yeah, it's not to as swim in, To swim in fresh water that has waves. Because Lake Michigan is so big, it's like a sea, it has waves. So it's, it's kind of weird because your brain is expecting the buoyancy to be different. And your body's meanwhile sinking like a stone. Right, right. <laughs> anyway, enough of that. Um, it's time for you to have an opportunity to ask Sarah some questions. I'm going to ask if you could possibly dim the cleags so we can actually see you. Um, and I think there's a roving mic in the room. Uh, is that right? There's a couple of roving mics, yes, are waving at the back. So who would like to... If you don't ask questions, I'll just pick on you at random, you know? <laughs> yeah, and by the way, it is all going to be on the test. <laughs> to collect your exam papers on the way out. It's yes. Hello. Um, just two, uh, two very, very quick questions. Um, have you ever been asked by the Chicago PD to help them with a case? Uh, Hello, I... I'm over here. Uh, right. That's over there. She's over there. Hello? Where? She's over there, Hello? sorry. Oh, I'm there. listening to the sound system. Can we bring okay. those lights down a wee bit more, please? We really sorry. can't see very can, much. Can you hear me Thank now? you. Yeah, oh, no, I totally hear you. I was just looking at the sound system, not oh. at the person who was speaking. <laughs> um, sorry? Oh, stand up. Okay. Um, yes, have you ever been asked by Chicago PD to help them with a case? That's the first question. And the second... <laughs> well, give me both and I'll answer them together. Now, I, I love her parents. I think you've painted her parents brilliantly. I wondered if you'd ever thought of going back and doing something where Sarah, where um, VI was a teenager and her parents were involved in something um, of a case, you know, with, with things that were going on at that time. Um, it's something we've seen with Inspector Morse. They've gone back. Uh, yeah, I love those endeavors. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the question, the two questions had to do with have the police ever consulted with me? And absolutely not, by no means. But, um, but they've been very generous with their advice and help to me. And surprisingly, because I don't depict them in the best possible light, uh, but, but they've been incredibly generous and taken me on ride-alongs and answered many, many questions for me. Um, and there are a couple of, of Chicago cops who are themselves also crime writers, and that's, that's also been a, a huge help. Uh, the other question had to do with, with a prequel, so to speak, VI, the prequel. I, I have written one short story uh, that, that's uh, it's called, I can't remember what it's called, um, but it's VI as a child. I self-published there's a collection of my short stories which was published in Britain as VI for short. And there are three VI stories that I wrote after that that I've self-published. So if you go to my website, you can buy them on iTunes, you can buy them pretty much anywhere that you can buy anything electronically or uh, they're, they're published through an outfit called Lulu and they'll actually send you a, a printed version if you want. So there are three short stories in there and one of them is is VI as a child in the one of the parks where the race riots were happening the summer that that I that I came here, and then I used that as the basis for the full-length novel Hardball as well. I am sometimes tempted when I wrote Critical Mass 
took me a long time to come up with the storyline that I wanted for a physics story. And I, I really kept, I wanted to write that story for about 20 years. And I would keep toying with different storylines. And the one that I kept thinking about was Tony, VI's father, being one of the people to do security for the Manhattan Project. But it, it just, it never came to life for me. I mean, I could see Gabriella homesick for Italy, speaking Italian with Enrico Fermi, and then I knew what Enrico Fermi was like and knew he wouldn't be bothered with her. Um, so, it, 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 I never could really come up with a storyline that worked for me in the prequel market, but, or niche, but, but it's still hovering there in my mind. Thank you. Any more questions? In the very back. Someone, someone here? Oh. And someone at the back. In your early novels, if VI wanted to do some research, you'd have to sit in a library all day. These days we have things like mobile phones and the internet and can find facts out really quickly. Do you think modern day technology has made crime fiction easier or harder to write? Uh, the question was, has modern day technology made crime fiction easier or harder to write? For me, it's been harder be, for the very reason that the questioner was saying, you know, you want your detective to be in motion, and in the day of, days of the web, there's so much you can find out online. Also, you're, you can be tracked easily, some of the detail, and I think sometimes my detail is way too much detailed, and, and I should slash a lot more of it out, but how, if, if your GPS signal if, if baddies can track you, as they easily can, uh, as well as the NSA, baddies can track you. And the NSA, of course, are not baddies. We all know that. No, no. Um, no. no Absolutely not. No. Right. I'm yes. from the government, and I'm here to help. <laughs> uh -huh. And that's a meaning of help that I'm not familiar with. <laughs> There's somebody right at the very far back there with a question. Yes, sir. Hey, sir. Um, you're right physicality very, very well. I just wondered if you'd ever punched anybody. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> have I ever punched anybody? I stopped when I was 10 and I realized that my brothers were all going to get a lot bigger than me and I started relying on psychological warfare and I have to say that, uh, that I, was, I was a pretty mean psychological street warrior. And my, somewhat embarrassed and ashamed when I think back on that. <laughs> now, of course, I'm nothing but good and pure and wholesome. <laughs> I was... Um, you strike people down with the power of your goodness and wholesomeness. Right, and they faint. Yeah. They're kind of like fainting goats. But I was sitting in, uh, in our car one day. My husband was out with the dog running some errand and I was sitting in a no-parking zone just waiting for them to come. And in front of me... Maybe for political reasons I should not tell this anecdote, but I'm going to tell it anyway, and then you can all throw rocks and tomatoes at me. But there was a bumper sticker on the car in front of me that said, abortion is murder. And I kept staring at it and getting more and more like, I'm really not enjoying looking at this. And there was a razor blade in the glove compartment so we could <laughs> scrape the old uh, parking, city parking permits out of our window. So I took it and I went and cut off the is murder part and peeled that off. 
And then it turned out that a, a very life and fit man in a hard hat with a large tool belt, that it was his car, and he came scrambling down from the scaffolding and leaned into the co my car. The windows were open, it was summer. And I was thinking, this might be the last day of my life. <laughs> and he said, how dare you deface your, my car? And I said, I wasn't defacing it. I was making it more attractive. And I was thinking, why am I even saying this? <laughs> and um, he really, he was really imagining that he was going to really slug me. And, uh, and then he realized that there were, at the last second, he realized that there were many, many people walking around. So he limited himself to a harangue and walked away. And I thought, Perhaps in the future, I will just keep the razor in the glove compartment, <laughs> keep my hands in my lap, and... Um, you mentioned yesterday when we were, we were talking that um, the, the next VI novel will take her back to, will take her to Kansas. Right. So she'll go back to where you started from. Right. Um, and, and I think this is one of the things that as writers, as we, as we get older, we become more interested in our own history as well. Yeah, I think we become, that's true. We understand the world better, so we understand our own history better. Do, do you think you're going to write, write more based in Kansas? You know, I'm, I'm a slow writer. I, I'm, my goal is to become a really fast writer and start writing 10 books a year. No. Um, but I, I have the idea for a, a character in Kansas who might start doing some investigations and I want this to be a book that begins to showcase her and then I can see whether mm -hmm. whether I really feel like it although oh gosh the governor of Kansas is a the state of Kansas is a man named Brownback and the state is now affectionately called Brownbackistan um, <laughs> And I'm not even sure how long my visa will be good for. <laughs> and I'm not sure whether I can even bear to spend a lot of time there now. It's, it's really depressing. On the same day, uh, the governor eliminated all funding for family planning, all funding for the arts. The United States, if a state, if one of the 50 states puts up $100,000 for arts in the state, the federal government will give them 700,000. The governor felt that arts could flourish without, you know, thank you very much, but money coming from Washington would pollute the arts. And so he eliminated all funding for the arts in Kansas, which, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's rural. They're tiny towns whose only source of creative outlet is a tiny theater where local kids can act. Um, so he eliminated family planning, the arts, and then in a master stroke, he closed the home for, for returning war veterans who've been so badly brain damaged that they can't feed or clothe themselves. And I, I think he planned to have all the gurneys just rolled into the governor's mansion and he would look after them himself. Oh. That's a big heart. I mean, and let's face it, I mean, if you have all these little theatres, all they all they provide is a place for gay people to congregate. Well, exactly. And you don't want that sort of thing going on, you know. Yeah. <coughs> God forbid. So Whereas now they can be turned over to, to uh, what's, what's the program where you teach gay people to come to Jesus and they're not really gay? We don't have that in this country. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I think we've got time for one last question before Sarah goes off to the signing tent. Is there any one last yes, question down here at the front? Just wait someone's for, coming just, with a could mic. Could just wait for the microphone? Thank you. I never knew that Sue Grafton and you published at the same time. And I read your books first. And then I read Sue Grafton. And I thought, she's ripped this off. <laughs> <laughs> and so now the question in my head was, was there something in the water? What do you think it was that made, the, in a sense, that same shift? Was there something in the water, Sue and I publishing at, at, at the same time? And, and, and others as well, Marshall right. Muller, Liza Barbara Wilson, had, Mary Wings, um, Liza Cody over here, yeah. Um, yes, I think definitely it was, second wave feminism was cresting, we were starting to see so much possibility and, and crime fiction both led and followed that movement. I did a, an event once at a Chicago library and at the end of it, I thought it had been successful. Not, I mean, it wasn't like this with 650 people, but you know, 100 people came and it was a great morning. And at the end, the librarian said, I like Sue's books better than yours. And I was like, thanks. <laughs> and then she said, yeah. they're much easier to shelve. <laughs> <laughs> And on that note, <laughs> um, we're, we're going we're gonna to go over now to the signing tent where uh, Sarah and I will both be signing. It would be really helpful if you could just stay in your seats long enough for us to sprint down the central aisle. <laughs> Sorry, just, um, but before we do that, uh, can I ask you please to put your hands together and say a big thanks to Sarah Peretsky. Thank you for listening to this event by Harrogate International Festivals. For more events, recordings, resources and information about our arts charity, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.